This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas Yidit Esther Bat Yona, the mother of our dear friend and longtime Torch board member Josh Blackman. Yidit Esther passed away this morning in New York. May her soul be elevated in heaven. Before we begin, we have two really exciting notes. So the first note is that the new Torch calendars should be hitting your mailboxes soon. It's actually stunning this year. But not only is it aesthetically beautiful, Torch chose to showcase some of the podcasts in the calendar. So ain't that nice? And if you have made a donation to Torch in the last 10 years, we have your address on file at least the one that you used, and you will be receiving in the next couple of days a brand new calendar. If you have moved, or if for whatever reason you have not gotten yours, please send me an email and I'll have one mailed to you. Now, if you have not yet made a donation, you could still, you could still get a calendar. Send me your mailing address and I'll have one sent to you as well. But if you haven't made yet a donation, maybe we can remedy that. We can remedy that today by visiting torchweb.org. And I've been told from reliable sources that the first time someone makes a donation to Torch, they have such a great feeling. I've, I've heard it described as, as like exhilarating. That's, that's one way it was described. A second way I heard it described is like as a, as a tingling experience, there's some sort of unbridled joy. I don't know where this comes from, but this is what I've been told. There's this unbridled joy when someone makes their first donation to Torch and it creates such a high that people feel like they just need to do it again. It's just, it's just so stunning. And if you want to have that experience, visit torchweb.org in every podcast in the description, in the notes. There's also a link to make a donation. And thank you for support and enjoy your calendar. That is exciting note number one. Exciting note number two, this is really exciting for us here at the Parsha Podcast. I spoke to the producers here at Torch and they've been weighing. They've been really deliberating, considering, vacillating back and forth, arguing in the boardroom as to whether or not to re-up the Parsha podcast for another season. But thank God they decided, they decided to renew us for another season. So we're just now about to finish year six of the Parsha podcast. We have five weeks to go this week. Kisavo, Nitzavim, Vayelech, Azin, That's it. And please God, we've been re-upped for year seven in just a couple of weeks. And I already have the plans for the new format. We're not going to have the exquisite insight segment next year. It's a different format. Right now, I'm not at liberty to share the format. It's still super duper secret. I cannot reveal any details yet. Maybe next week I'm going to speak. I'm going to try to get permission from the executive director team here at Torch to reveal it next week. We'll have to see. Cliffhanger, you got to come back. But we're getting close. It's so exciting to finish 
a year of Parsha podcasts and to begin the plan for year seven. It's really unbelievable. And in all seriousness, may the Almighty give us all the strength to study Torah, to study the Parsha for the rest of this year and please God next year as well. So our Parsha is one of the most difficult Parshas to read end to end because, of course, it has the admonition, the reprimandation, the part of the Torah that talks about the curses that will befall us if we neglect and repudiate the Word of God. But it starts off with the mitzvah of Bipurim. When you come to the land, you acquire it, you settle it, you plant your trees and your orchards, and it yields crops. The mitzvah of Bikurim tells us that we take from the seven special species of the land, so that's wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates, and you take the first fruit, and Rashi tells us that when the nubs of the first fruit, they start to surface, you take a special string, and you make an announcement, this is Bikurim, and then once it's ready, you place it in a basket, and there's this whole elaborate ceremony. You're supposed to separate the fruits really nicely. And you're supposed to adorn the basket with decorative fruits. And there's this whole procedure of bringing it to Jerusalem. The Rambam tells us that people from a given region would coalesce together and they would have a whole procession led by an ox with gold-plated horns adorned with a wreath of an olive tree on its head. And as they ascended to Jerusalem, there would be musical accompaniment that have a, a flute playing and they'd be singing the song from Psalms 122. We're so happy we're going to the house of God. And the people of Jerusalem would come out and greet them. And once they entered Jerusalem, they would go to the next verse of Psalms 122. We're in the gates of Jerusalem. And the local Jerusalemites would come greet them. And they travel all the way to Temple Mount, and once they got to Temple Mount, they'll place the basket upon their shoulders, and they go into the sanctuary. So they have these first fruits. They've traveled from their home all the way to the temple, all the way to the sanctuary, and they would present it to the Kohen. The Kohanim who were there, they would be the recipients of these first fruits. And once they actually got to the temple, there was a further ceremony where the person would wave the basket, and they would recite a very specific passage from our Parsha, six verses, chapter 26 of Deuteronomy, verses 5 through 10. And they talk about the Aramean, Laban, who wanted to destroy our ancestor, and they went down to Egypt, and they lived there, small in number, but they became a mighty and numerous nation. And the Egyptians did bad to us, and they tormented us, and they oppressed us, and they made us work, very harsh work. And we cried out to Hashem our God. And Hashem heard our voices. And He saw our pain. And He saw our suffering. And He took us out of Egypt with a strong hand and outstretched arm with great wonders and miracles and signs and brought us to this land and gave us the land flowing with milk and honey. And now I'm taking my first fruits and I'm presenting it before God in the temple. And He bows before God. This is a mitzvah, part of the mitzvah, which well, is really two separate mitzvahs. Number one, to give the first fruit to the Kohen. And number two, to make this declaration detailing the history of the Jewish people all the way back to Laban the Aramean. 
and talking about Egypt and how bad it was for us there until we had the wondrous, miraculous Exodus. And now we're here and we want to thank the Almighty. He places it, the basket of fruits near the altar, prostrates and leaves. So this is a beautiful mitzvah, of course. It's similar to tithes. It's another mitzvah that is associated with the produce that your field or orchard in the land of Israel produces. It's specific to the seven special fruits that the land is praised with. But there's this, again, very elaborate ceremony. You, you bring it to Jerusalem in this triumphant pilgrimage, and you give it to the Kohen, you make this elaborate declaration, and you talk about the kindness of God, and you invoke some of the history of our people going all the way back to Laban, who tried to destroy us, going down to Egypt and suffering there, being tormented there, and God saved us, and now look where we are. It's a fitting opportunity to thank God. Our podcast today, the fifth to last podcast of this cycle, this season, in the wonderful, exhilarating news that we've been re-upped for another season, is going to orient around this mitzvah, the mitzvah of Bikurim. And we're going to start with a stunning midrash. Now, this midrash is not on our parsha. It's actually all the way back on Genesis, Genesis 1, verse 1. The first word of the Torah, Bereshis, in the beginning. The Midrash says, why did God create the world in the beginning? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Bereshis, says the Midrash. If you look at our parsha, it talks about the first fruit. You take Miracious from the first fruit, says the Midrash, something stunning. Why did God do Bereshis? Why did God create the world? It's for the mitzvah of Bikurim that has the word racious in it as well. The Midrash tells us that this mitzvah, this nice mitzvah, this beautiful mitzvah, this heartening mitzvah of taking the first fruits, bringing them to Jerusalem, thanking God, that is a fulfillment of the reason why God created the world. Now, in the past, and in the rebroadcast episode, we talked about this Midrash. And we went through maybe the classic explanation of this Midrash that this mitzvah, first fruits, is about showing gratitude and not being an ingrate and appreciating the goodness that God does for us. An appreciation, not being an ingrate to appreciate all that God does for you, to acknowledge all the goodness that you have in your life. That is a central component of our spiritual life. It's a tacit acknowledgement of God's dominion, and that's why God created the world. Or perhaps that's the reason why the Midrash says this is why God created the world. In today's podcast, we're going to suggest a novel approach to this Midrash, to the Midrash that says that this mitzvah of Bikurim, the first fruits, is emblematic of why God created the world. And we're going to start with the declaration that you make once you get there, once you deposit it in front of the altar, you make it this declaration. 
and the beginning of the decoration where it talks about Laban the Aramean. It starts off, the first thing you say, Arami Oved Avi, the Aramean, wanted to destroy our forefather. Laban tried to destroy our nation. Now, just a quick reminder, who is Laban? He's a shadowy figure back in Genesis. He first appears in Genesis 24 as the brother of Rebekah. When Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, is commissioned to go find a wife for Isaac and to go to Abraham's homeland and to his family, he is sent and he meets Rebekah by the well and she generously offers to give him water and to his camel's water. And he has to negotiate the terms of this betrothal of Isaac and Rebekah with Laban and the rest of Rebekah's family, because Laban is the brother of Rebekah. That's the first appearance that Laban has in the Torah, and he makes another extended appearance in Genesis. After Jacob usurps the blessings intended for Esau, Esau wants to kill him, he has to flee, and he goes to Laban. And he works for Laban for seven years in exchange for the rights to marry Laban's younger daughter, Rachel. So we have two connections so far to Laban. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is Laban's sister. And now Jacob wants to marry Laban's daughter, i.e. his first cousin, his mother Rebecca's brother is Laban. His daughter is Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel and agrees to work for seven years. After seven years, we know the story. There's a wedding planned, but instead of sending his younger daughter, Rachel, he supplants her with his elder daughter, Leah. Jacob marries unwittingly. He marries Leah. And in the morning, he's not so happy about it. And Laban says, well, you know, that's the way we do things over here. No big deal. I'll give you Rachel. You just have to work for seven more years, which... Jacob does. Ultimately, he stays for 20 years in total, 14 for the rights to marry Rachel and Leah. And the last six as an employee, and the terms of their agreement are changed a hundred times over the course of these 20 years. Jacob amasses a very large family, four wives, 12 children, 11 sons, and of course, his daughter, Dina. Eventually, God tells Jacob to leave, and he flees. He absconds from Laban with all his possessions, with all his family. Laban gets wind of this, and he hunts Jacob down. God appears to Laban in a dream and warns him, don't start up with Jacob. Eventually, there's the standoff, and ultimately, they hash out terms, and they erect a monument, and they depart each other amicably. That is the last that we have heard of Laban until now. He is, you know, a wily, deceptive father of the Jewish people. He's Uncle Laban. He's the brother of Rebecca. He's Grandpa Laban, the father of Rachel and Leah. He's this, you know, fiendish figure, but he also has some redeeming qualities. So, for example, he blesses Rebecca before she goes back with Eliezer, and that blessing is recorded in the Torah. He also blesses his daughters after the standoff. And that's a second blessing of Laban recorded 
in the Torah. If he was a total good-for-nothing, those blessings would not be recorded. But at this juncture of Deuteronomy, Laban's been long forgotten. Until he makes this very strange appearance in the Declaration of the First Fruits. Every year, every farmer in Israel brings the first fruits to Jerusalem. And part of the mitzvah is to make a proclamation, to make an announcement. And it starts with Uncle Grandpa Father Lolaben. And specifically, it highlights his dastardly plans for the Jewish people. Arami Oved Avi. Laban tried to destroy our father, and they descended to Egypt. Laban is a name that lives in eternal infamy. Now today, we don't have Bikurim, we don't have a temple. But Laban makes another ignominious appearance each year. In the Haggadah that we read at the Seder each Pesach, in the beginning of the Egypt narrative, we quote this verse, the verse of the First Fruits Declaration. And we talk about the various threats that our nation faces each generation. Every generation, there are existential threats trying to destroy our nation. And we say it's not just one time, it's not just one person, it's not just one force. In each generation, there are forces engineered to try to destroy us. But the Almighty saves us. And you should study, says the Haggadah, we say in the Haggadah, Laban the Aramean, what he sought to do to Jacob, our forefather. Pharaoh? Pharaoh only wanted to kill the males. But Laban wanted to uproot everything. And it quotes the verse of our Parsha, Arami, Oved, Avi, the Aramean, tried to destroy our father. This is a stunning piece that we read each year. We're talking about the phenomenon that repeats itself each generation. Each generation, there are forces that try to destroy us. And Pharaoh, who enslaved the Jewish people and drowned the Jewish males, he's not the first, he's not even the worst. Laban, Laban was actually worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to kill only the Jewish males, but Laban sought to uproot everything, and God saved us from both of these tyrants, from both of these genocidal villains. So, of course, this raises a lot of questions. You know, we don't see in Laban's story, we see he's deceitful, and we see he's a little devilish, and wily, and chicanerous, but no one would compare him to Pharaoh. Certainly not to say that he's worse than Pharaoh. And to understand the kinds of risks imposed by Laban versus Pharaoh, it's another interesting angle to take this idea to. Perhaps we could even wonder, if this is true, every generation there's a force trying to destroy us. Why is that true? Why can't we ever rest on our laurels? Moreover, what is the current threat to our people? There's a lot of questions that this raises, but I want to bring this back to the first fruits. We have a mitzvah, first fruits. It seems very similar to all the other tithes, but somehow we're connecting it to Laban and to Pharaoh and to these various threats. 
what is the connection? Why is this relevant to the first fruits? So what we're going to try to do today is to understand the first fruits and how it relates to Laban and to Pharaoh and how it explains the Midrash that says that this is really why God created the whole world. Beratius, it's all voracious. Let's begin. In our approach that we will propose, we're going to try to offer a continuous theme threaded throughout all these subjects. What exactly was the conflict with Laban? Why is that similar to what happened with Pharaoh? Why is it intimately connected to the first fruits? And why the first fruits are emblematic of why God created the world? And once we develop this idea, it will also serve as a valuable framework that can be used in innumerable ways to improve ourselves and to improve our lives. So we're making a big pledge here. Let me know if we deliver. So I noticed something really interesting. Our sages highlight another similarity between Laban and Pharaoh. Again, there are two existential threats faced by the people that are mentioned explicitly. There are other ones that are not mentioned explicitly. Every generation there is one. We'll talk about two of them, Laban, Pharaoh. There's a similarity that our sages revealed and highlighted between these two and why the nation endured. In what merit did Jacob overcome the threats posed by Laban? In what merit did the Israelites overcome the threats posed by Pharaoh in Egypt? In both instances, our sages tell us that the reason why we endured, it was in the merit of of Jacob and the Israelites clinging tenaciously to their identity and to their values. After Jacob parted ways with Laban, he had another encounter with another arch foe, with Esau. And at the beginning of Parshas Vayishlach, this is Genesis chapter 32, verse 5, Jacob conveys a message to his brother, to his twin brother Esau. And it starts, Im Lavan Garti, I have lived with Laban. And Rashi tells us the word Garti, I have lived, that's an anagram. That's the same letters as the word Taryag, which means 613. Says Rashi, Jacob used these words with precision. I have lived with Laban, im lavan garti. He's trying to tell him, I have clung, I have maintained, I have adhered to all 613 mitzvos. Despite being with Laban, Jacob clung to the Torah and that ensured that he will endure. In this conflict with Laban, Jacob clung to what was critically important. Well, what about Egypt? Why the nation survived Egypt? So the Midrash tells us the reason why the Jewish people were saved, it's due to three things. 
Number one, they did not change their names. They did not change their language. And they were meticulous in matters of intimacy, in familial matters. And that's why they survived. In the imbroglio of Egypt, in the conflict of Egypt, Israel clung to their identity. They didn't change their names. They didn't change their language. They didn't intermarry and assimilate and acculturate into the ways of the Egyptians in their conflict. They clung to their values and identity, and that's why they were saved. We have two ways in which Laban and and Pharaoh seem to parallel each other. In the verse and in the Haggadah, it talks about these two grand conflicts where we almost lost the Jewish experience where the ember of Abraham was at risk of being snuffed out. Both were existential risks, despite the risk of Laban being even worse. And in both, we find that the good guys survived because of what they clung to. Jacob, to the 613, in love I live with Laban, 613 I maintained. And the Israelites, they clung to their names, to their language, to their families, to their identity. They maintained what made them special and unique, and that's why they survived. So here's the point I want to make. This is the theory, perhaps we should say, that I want to speculate. And I know there's a lot of moving parts here. We have the, the first fruits and the decoration and Laban and, and, and Jacob and Pharaoh. This is the point I want to say. There's a verse in Deuteronomy. It's an unforgettable verse to our friends in Canada and Colorado and California. Deuteronomy 4.20. It describes the Egyptian experience as an iron crucible. Moshe is talking to Jewish people. God took you out, mikur habarzel, from the iron crucible, mimitzrayim, from Egypt. The Jewish people in Egypt, they were in a kur habarzel, they were in an iron crucible. What's an iron crucible? So Rashi tells us it is a vessel in which gold is refined. You have gold, but it has impurities. It has alloys. And you want to remove those alloys. You want to refine those impurities. You put it in a kur habarzel. You put it in this burning, fiery, hot iron crucible. And that separates the gold from the alloys. The kur habarzel, the iron crucible, takes the mixture and with great heat separates the gold from the impurities. That's what Egypt was like. It was a scolding kur habarzel, a fiery iron crucible. The Jewish people went down to this kur habarzel, into this iron crucible as a mixture of gold. They had gold and other stuff, alloys, impurities. There were elements that were detracting from the purity of their gold. But over the course of the Egyptian experience, the gold was separated from the alloys. The gold was refined. 
the impurities were removed. And when they departed from Egypt, they were pure gold. The alloys had been separated due to the experience in this Kur Habarzel, in this iron crucible. What was left was just the gold. The nation is now ready. They're ready for manna, food of angels. They're ready for the splitting of the sea. They're ready to coalesce at the mountain, at Mount Sinai. They're ready for revelation. They're ready for Torah. So here's the theory. Egypt was a Kur Habarza. It was a fiery iron crucible. It was bound to separate the gold from the alloys. That's what happens in a Kur Habarzal, in an iron crucible. That's what it does. It separates the two. But here's the critical point. What will remain? Suppose you have gold mixed with other non-gold things, impurities, contaminants, other elements. You have the very valuable, precious gold and all the other junk and so mixed them together. If you're separating a mixture, the result can be either that you keep the gold and you allow the impurities to melt away, to be shedded away. But it's also possible that you hold on to those impurities and you lose the gold. What did the Jewish people in Egypt do? We're told they clung to the gold, to their values, to their priorities, to their people. They clung to their names and language and families and identities. They held on to the gold for dear life. And thereby, the experience of the Egyptian Kur Habarzal, the Egyptian Iron Crucible, well, what they clung to, they kept, and the other stuff melted away. They left as pure gold... The Kur Habarzal, the Iron Crucible, primed them for greatness because they they clung to the gold. It was a productive and edifying experience. Could have been the opposite. There is a counterfactual world in which they entered this Iron Crucible, this Kur Habarzal, and not only did it not solve the problem of gold being sullied, with some contaminants, it could have exacerbated the problem. They would come in as a mixture. But had they clung to the alloys, to the impurities, those two would have separated and they would have lost the gold. An iron crucible, it separates. And depending upon what you hold dearly and don't yield at all, when you're in that crucible... When you're in that Kur Habarzel, that's what you have after you emerge from that crucible. Because the Jewish people clung to the gold, when they emerged, they emerged as flawless, refined gold. Now we call the iron crucible, it's a core. That's the Hebrew word, core. The mitzvah in our parsha is 
Bikurim. Plural in Hebrew of Kur is Kurim. And the B of Bikurim, it's a prefix meaning inside. Thus, the word Bikurim perhaps can be read as Bikurim, inside crucibles. Be, which means inside. Kurim, crucibles. You have one crucible, a one kur habarzel. That's the iron crucible of Egypt. But that's not the only kur or the only iron crucible or crucible that our nation faced. We have many crucibles in every generation. We have another crucible. And the mitzvah of Bikurim, that refers to how we behave while inside those very difficult and perhaps even painful and trying and challenging crucibles. The Jews in Egypt, they emerged much stronger from the experience because they clung to the gold and thereby they emerged as just gold with nothing else. Same thing with Jacob and Laban. It too was a crucible. In that core, in that very difficult, challenging, adversity-filled, laden with danger experience with Laban, Jacob clung to the 613. And when he emerged, he was able to triumph over Esav. When he went to the crucible, he was fleeing from Esav. And when he emerged, 20 years later, he had spent 20 years in that crucible, clinging hard to the gold. What melted away was just the impurities. Now is able to face off against Esav and win. And we can suggest even further, that's really the mitzvah, the essence of the mitzvah, of Bikurim. The Talmud tells us that when someone plants, they plant with faith. They believe in God and they put the seed into the ground. If you think about it, planting too is, it's a mixture. You start off with faith in God and of course, a commitment to work. What happens when we have a Jewish farmer? Of course, they're praying. They're hoping for rain, for sun, for the correct conditions for the seeds to sprout. They're going to do the work, but they're also going to rely on God. Relying on themselves and their work and relying on God. It's a mixture. And they have a whole season of anxiety and uncertainty and that too is a core, is a crucible. And you don't know. The whole, the whole winter, will I have food for my family or will we suffer in famine? You know, to us, we live in an era of abundance, certainly in the Western world. In antiquity, this was a real concern. Every year, are we going to live or are we going to die of starvation? Our problem today is we have too many calories. Oh, I can't stop stuffing my face with cookies and potato chips. That's our problem. This is a very 
recent reality. For millennia, there were never sufficient calories for everyone. Hunger, starvation, famine, that was the norm. What happened when the fruits finally sprouted? What happened to that faith? What happened to that faith when you planted? Did did that stay? Did you cling to it while you were inside the crucible? The mitzvah bikurim symbolizes clinging to the gold during each planting season, each year of a crop cycle, and it's connected to the idea of always maintaining the gold in every crucible. And when the fruits finally emerge, after a nerve-wracking winter, the agony's over, you finally can tell that you're going to make it, you take those fruits and you bring them to Jerusalem and you verbally acknowledge that the Almighty, He's the one who gave you those fruits. He's the one who you have to thank for this plenty. That's Bikurim. The mitzvah is symbolic to all the crucibles that we go through and that we've gone through in the past as individuals, as members of a nation. And therefore, when you bring those Bikurim, you invoke some historical examples of our illustrious antecedents, and they are going to serve as role models for how we're supposed to act Bikurim inside, Kurs inside, Kurim inside, crucibles. When we attach ourselves to this glorious chain, and we demonstrate how we too, after the whole cycle, we have our faith intact. We too have clung to the gold. Bikurim is not an isolated one-off mitzvah. This is the reason why God created the world. Beratius, racious, this is our life mission in a nutshell. Life, it's a crucible. If you think about it, we're a mixture. We're an amalgam. We are gold with other impurities that are mashed up into this mixture. We have a soul. The soul is golden. But there are all kinds of alloys detracting from the soul's splendor. And life is full of challenges, full of conflicts. It's a crucible. And when you emerge out of this crucible, you're going to have a vise on one of these two. But which will it be? Are you going to be holding onto your soul, onto your gold? Or are you going to emerge clinging to those contaminants and thereby losing the gold. All of life really is about this question. The reason why God created the world is for this dilemma, for this test, for this challenge. And the objective is for us to emerge with the gold, refined, polished, cleansed, 
from any impairments, from any impurities. This mitzvah, Bikurim, it shows us how we're supposed to act inside the crucibles. And this is emblematic of the reason why God created the world. And when we look back at Jacob in the home of Laban, under very trying circumstances, clinging to the 613 and emerging from that crucible as a more refined gold. And we see the Jewish people in Egypt holding on to their identity, their names, their language, their families, their culture, their Abrahamic identity. And they come out of the core, out of the crucible as more refined gold. And we look at the farmer steadfastly clinging to the faith and emerging from that season and going to Jerusalem to thank God. Bikurim, how these people are acting in the crucible, we get a picture of what our life should look like. This is why God created the world. Our whole life is a big crucible of conflict. And we enter as a mixture. We have gold, of course, within us. And there are other things that are very distant from gold and are actually detracting from the sheen and the shine of the gold. And we are reminded to cling to that gold and allow the impurities to be removed. In a core, in a crucible, something is going to be melted away. Something has to give. Depending upon what you cling to, that's going to determine what you emerge with. I think there's a very valuable and powerful lesson here. Our life has meaning because of our capacity for greatness. We all have greatness within us. The problem is it's not isolated. There's all kinds of other schmutz there detracting from our greatness. We have the gold within us, but there are all kinds of other alloys detracting from its shine. And our life is full of adversity, challenges, conflicts, crucibles of all sizes, stripes, and colors. We have, of course, the overarching conflict of life. You're thrown in over here. And the spiritual realm is invisible. And God is invisible. And everything that is going to pull you away from God is not just visible, it's appealing. And your brain tells you there's got to be a creator, there's got to be a plan. And your tradition and your logic, if you are fortunate enough to be exposed to it, tells you that the Torah is real. But it doesn't quite have that same that same punch, that same oomph as what the Yitzhak is trying to sell you. That's a conflict. That's a crucible. And whatever you cling to, that's what you're going to merge with. The other parts are going to melt away. But even within a lifetime, there are little mini crucibles. Every challenge is a crucible. And it's going to separate the gold from all the other impurities. 
and what you hold on to tightly. And don't relinquish and don't yield. That's going to determine what you emerge with. In the law of Bikurim, we learn how to act Bikurim inside said crucibles. And we look back at these historical examples and we see Jacob, our forefather, clinging to the 613 and the Jewish people in Egypt clinging to their identity and the righteous farmers holding on tight to their faith. And the Midrash reminds us this is why God created the world. Adversity, challenges, crucibles are going to melt away. They're going to remove some of the factors of the myths of the amalgam that enter the crucibles. The only question is, what are we losing and what are we gaining? What are we maintaining? When we cling to the gold amid the core, amid the crucible, we can and will emerge from the experience as refined and resplendent gold. Let's get to this week's exquisite insight. I can't believe that there are only five weeks left to this cycle of the Parsha podcast. Five exquisite insights to go. Let's see if we have any exquisite insights this week. So I want to address something that we mentioned a little bit earlier. And that is that Laban, he's a threat. And Pharaoh, he's a threat. But which one is the worst threat? Well, Pharaoh, Pharaoh only wanted to kill the males. Laban, he wanted to uproot everything. And the question I want to pose is how can we really say, how can we legitimately make a claim that Laban was worse than Pharaoh? Now, I did some research in my notes and catalog nearly two years ago in an episode titled Laban's Potion. We dedicated an entire episode to answer this question. Today, we're going to add two very clever answers, perhaps we can say even exquisite ones, to show how Laban really tried to make it all worse. So the first one is courtesy of the Gona Vilna. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the work of the Gona Vilna, he was, you know, the greatest sage of his century, which was the 18th century. And he knew, he knew all, he knew all of wisdom and certainly all of Torah. And he would make connections that people, ordinary people just could never come up with on their own. But then once you see a connections where he kind of takes his complete encyclopedic knowledge of the literature and shows, you know, from this source and that source together how it just gives a resolution to a third place. It's just, it's just a work of art. And there are, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands of little bits like this. So he said that, uh, he quotes from the Talmud. The Talmud says, if a person sends an emissary to go betroth a woman for him. So there's a principle in the Talmud that if you want to accomplish a certain end, 
like to get married, you can do it yourself or you can hire an emissary. So the man can hire an emissary, the woman can hire an emissary, like a, a proxy to stand in for them. So a man tells a messenger, go, go, go betroth a woman for me. And here's what you need to do. Here's the ring. Go do it for me. A couple days later, he gets the unfortunate note. Oh, your messenger is dead. And we don't know what happened. Did he get uh, to do his mission? Did he betroth someone? And he's on the way back to tell you, oh, here's your new wife? Or not? You have no idea. So Tama tells us that this man is now not allowed to marry any woman in the world. Because any woman could be the sister, the mother, the daughter of the person, of the woman that his messenger, before he died, betrothed. This is why it's a very bad idea to hire someone to do this for you. But that's the Talmud in the book of Gittin on page 64a. If you hire a messenger to go betroth the woman for you, and then they die, and you don't know the final resolution of this of this transaction, of this proxy, you cannot marry anyone in the world. That's Talmud number one. When Abraham sent Eliezer to go find a wife for Isaac, they went to find Rebecca. And after being wowed by Rebecca's kindness, she gave him water, and she gave the camels water. Elias says, this is great. I can't believe it. It's wonderful. And he went to go negotiate with the family. So if you look at the story in chapter 24 of Genesis, you see that Eliezer is dealing with a bunch of people, Laban, and a gentleman by the name of Besuel, who is Laban and Rebekah's father. And at the beginning of the story, he's dealing with them both. But then in the middle of the story, Besuel, father of both Rebekah and Laban, disappears. And he's dealing just with Laban. So the Midrash tells us what happened. Laban, seeing all the gold and all the property and all the valuables in the hands of Eliezer, he hatched a plan. He took some poison. He took some Mesopotamian cyanide. And he put it in the food of Eliezer. He's going to eat the food. He's going to die. I'll take all his 10 camels laden with all these valuables and treasures. But an angel came and took the plates, the respective plates of Eliezer and Basuel and did a switcheroo, did a swapping. So when Eliezer finally ate, he ate the unpoisoned plate. And when Basuel ate, says the Midrash, he ate the poison and died. And that's why he disappears from the narrative, from the dialogue. It's just Laban. Now, what was Laban's plan? What did Laban try to do? He wanted to kill Eliezer. Had Eliezer died, what would happen to Isaac? Isaac would send a messenger, go marry someone for me. 
Eliezer will be dead. And now, based upon the Talmud's ruling in the book of Gittin, page 64a, Isaac would be barred from marrying any woman in the world. And he would die without getting married. And Jacob would never be born. And the Jewish people would not exist. That is what would have happened had Laban been allowed to do what he had hatched. And that's why we could say that Laban tried to uproot everything. Pharaoh wanted to kill all the males. Laban wanted to dispense of the entire notion of a Jewish nation before Jacob was even born, before Isaac and Rebekah were even engaged by his plot to kill Eliezer. So clever to take the statement in the Haggadah, Laban's worse than Pharaoh, find the Talmud that says a law about a messenger sent to betroth the woman who dies, find the Midrash who says that that's really what Laban had intended and using these three sources to explain how Laban was worse, just an exquisite piece courtesy of the Gon of Vilna. One more quick and exquisite, also clever explanation. This one I saw in the name of the Alshech, one of the commentators on the Torah. He points out that Laban switched Leah for Rachel. What would have happened had Laban not done that? Well, Jacob would have married Rachel. Her eldest son is Joseph. Had Laban not interfered with the family, Joseph would have been firstborn. And because Joseph was not the firstborn, he wasn't the oldest. His favoritism, the favoritism towards him, raised the ire of his brothers, eventually leading to him being sold to Egypt and eventually leading to the Jewish people sending to Egypt. And that's why the verse says, the Aramean tried to destroy my forefather and the descendant to Egypt. Laban, he is so bad. And he's even worse than Pharaoh because he's the one who got the Jewish people into this mess to begin with by doing, by engaging in this switch rule. Again, very clever, very exquisite insights. I gave you two of them because we're coming to the end of this year. Year six, the Parsha podcast. I hope you enjoyed this. Hope you found this to be interesting and entertaining. I thank you so much for listening. I remind you to send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Have a great day. Have a fantastic rest of your week. Have a restful and invigorating and uplifting and tranquil and inspiring Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with help the Almighty, we'll talk again in good health and great spirits next week.